And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Got a great show today. Let's get right to it. Our special guest is The Athletic's newest college football writer, Sam Kahn Jr. Sam is our expert on all things college football in the state of Texas. We're going to talk some Longhorns, Aggies, Baylor Bears, TCU, you name it. Let's get to Sam. Okay, Stu, we're both excited to be joined by our guest and our newest colleague at The Athletic, Sam Kahn. Uh, for our most of our listeners probably remember Sam from his time at ESPN. Um, but, you know, what's funny, Stu, is... Years ago, and I don't think I was at The Athletic at this point, I remember it being at Big 12 Media Days. And, you know, at one point I remember Max, who was not officially hired at The Athletic, but I remember I was going to meet some Fox people at some, like, hotel bar that was near wherever they were having the Big 12 Media Days. And Max was kind of like clandestine kind of meeting with somebody and I remember talking to Ubbin, who was there, not at like at Big 12 Media Days. And, you know, it's weird because like, I don't think I, you know, I knew who Vanini was, but I'd never seen him in person. So I could, I was like, I think I might have texted you. What does Chris Vanini actually look like? Or, or, you know, one of those things. But as it turned out, and I've seen Sam a bunch of times now at, at Big 12 related stuff and in his beloved state of Texas. Stu, you ended up hiring half the people who were in that building that day. <laughs> Go figure. Well, Sam, to his credit, first of all, we, we've wanted you to join us for, for a long time now, so we're so happy to have you. And, you know, when, when Jill Thaw, who's our managing editor, who also used to be at ESPN, and myself, uh, talked to you a couple months ago, you came up with your own job description. Tell, tell the listeners what it is. The tech expert. The uh, the expert in the state of Texas. That's I like I like not having to worry too much about anything beyond the state borders because there is plenty to keep me busy down here. But uh, but I appreciate I appreciate everything you guys did to make it happen, and it's been a whole lot of fun so far since I've been on board. Yes, and it's certainly been a long time coming. I feel like we've recruited you as hard as anybody gets recruited in the state of Texas, which is saying something. <laughs> um, but let's start. You come at a really interesting time. Certainly, new uh, new head coach at Texas. Um, Jimbo just had an, a, a, you know, what we think is a breakthrough year uh, at A&M, certainly. And so um, let's start with Texas, though. Stu and I had on Steve Sarkeesian right around signing day. Um, and it's a really interesting time there. We should tell people that you covered Houston before you were at ESPN. So you really have a lot of roots there. Um, and so you and you have a great handle on Tom Herman. And I think a lot of us, at least I did, and I don't remember if Stu did, but thought it was going to work out better than it did um, there. So I would ask you this. How much different do you feel about Sark coming in now, taking over like to see if he can get it to somewhere that Texas really hasn't been since Marcel Darius knocked out Colt McCoy? I think he's definitely in a better spot than Tom was when he took the job over and in, heading into 2017 because, I mean, the floor has been raised because I think that was the thing when Tom took the job was they were still a little bit of a disaster. You know, they had lost seven games three years in a row and they had only been to a bowl game one time in the Charlie Strong era. So a lot of it was just simply, one, stabilize the quarterback room, which they did with Sam Ellinger, two, upgrade the talent level overall and across the board, which I think they did for the most part. And then three, just actually get back to winning ball games, you know, and they, they went to four bowl games. They went to the Sugar Bowl and competed for a Big 12 championship, but clearly not enough to help keep the job. So I think Sark is starting from a better place where Tom is. And so that clearly gives him a better chance long term 
to raise them back to compete for a national championship level. But to me, it still comes down to, is he going to be allowed to do the job the way he wants to do the job, needs to do the job? Or is there going to be interference from all the random outsiders, you know, that tend to get involved when you have, uh, you know, the head coaching job at Texas? Yeah, I mean, there's the long-term question, and nobody knows the answer to that. I mean, does, does Texas have the alignment necessary to uh, be a national championship contending program? But in terms of this coming season, the short term, the fact is, like, Oklahoma has dominated that conference for six years, and yet they would play every time they played the Red River game under Tom Herman. It, I mean, some of the more cla- – last year's game was a classic, right? Like, it did not ever appear on when they were on the field together that they were that far apart. But Oklahoma would always get it done, and te- other you know they did beat them that one year in the regular season. And Texas just was so frustrating watching them under Herman. It was always the same thing. It was always the penalties and the mistakes and the fumbles. And so I feel like if Sark can magically cure that alone, they should win some more games. Yeah, I think it helps a lot if you're able to do that. I mean that that's and I think that's one thing that ended up hurting Tom at the end of the day because a lot of those mistakes that you talk about were things that were seen in the Charlie Strong era and were a big reason why they ended up firing him. He's got to clean that up. I think he starts from a really good place with having Bijan Robinson in the back in the backfield. And I think if you ask Texas fans, one of their biggest frustrations last year was that he didn't get the ball enough. I mean, he ran for like a, over 100 yards the last two games, and he didn't carry the ball more than 10 times in either of those last two games. They, if they feed him the ball, I think he is actually a dark horse Heisman Trophy candidate. They got to figure out the the quarterback situation, obviously, but just with just with having that kind of dynamic talent, and you see with what Sark did with Najee Harris, I feel like that's a really good place to start and, and give them a chance this year because that's a dynamic player that can help you win a ball game. Let me ask you this, Sam. So we've talked about Texas. Tom Herman, you know, signed a bunch of blue chip kids. Some of them, especially on the defensive side of the ball, really didn't develop into that or, or back it up. Um, on the other side of it, Jimbo Fisher, I think there was more of a wait and see. And then last year was a big breakthrough season. Now, Kellen Mond is gone. He played a lot of football. There's really good skill talent, but they got to rebuild the offensive line. Uh, they're in the SEC, in the SEC West. It's not like they're in the Big 12. So it's, I guess the question to you is, after a big, do you think that was, he had a top five season. Kevin someone who you covered back in the Houston days, he had the first top five season at A&M in like 50 plus years. And then it was a lot of eight and five-ish kind of stuff. And it was kind of back to um, struggling or not, you know, just not being a top 10 team. And for whatever reason, AM has had a lot of that where it just feels like it has been underachieving for a long time. So I'm curious, do you think that this last year's top five season for Jimbo was the start of what is going to be a really, you know, significant run in college football? Or is it like, eh, let me see, you know, that they're not going to take a step back after last year as they find a, they have to find a new quarterback and put some pieces together. Where do you think they are headed? Because it's much different to do what he's trying to do in the big in the SEC than what he was in the ACC before Clemson got going. At this point, I lean a little bit, a little bit toward that it's the start of something really good. Uh, for this reason, the last, the, all of the recruiting classes since he's signed, not counting the transition class, have been top seven classes nationally. And they have not, even in the Kevin Sumlin era where they recruited well, they did not recruit at that level consistently. They did have a top five class in 2014, but, you know, you mixed in a a number 12 class here, a number 10 class there, you know, every now and then they got in top five, but he is consistently stacking these classes on top of each other. And that to me is what gives him the chance and gives that program the chance to win long-term. But to me that this season is when you answer that question because are they able to go be a 10 win team again? If they are, then I think, yes, I think this is a chance for them to do something special. And I do think they're set up well this year. I mean, they've got nine defensive starters back. Uh, they only lost, you know, Buddy Johnson and Bobby Brown and they, they feel like defensively they could be as good as they've been in a couple decades there. The big questions are, Offensive line where they lose four starters. They got an All-American Kenyon Green who's going to move over to left tackle, and they've got to figure out quarterback, whether it's Haynes King or Zach Calzada, Eli Stowers. They've got to figure that part out, and there's going to be some growing pains 
in that regard. But with the skill, talent on offense, and all that experience on defense, I feel like they're set up for really good to run it back this year and have a pretty strong year. One thing on that, and just maybe to play devil's advocate a little bit, Sam, like Jimbo recruited really highly ranked classes when he was at FSU, even after they won the national title. It was like top five classes, and they really just kind of seemed to fall apart, Um, especially at the end when he left. Obviously, that place was a mess, and then it continued to be a mess and still to some degree is, but what do you think is different here now where, I don't know, like I said, other people get the benefit of the doubt when they pile up top five, top six classes. I just think that just he had a bunch of those and it didn't work out at FSU once they got success. How does he sustain it? Yeah, I mean, you've got to stay consistent with, you know, the, really the lines of scrimmage, you know, recruit highly on the offensive line, recruit highly on the defensive line. And I think the interesting thing for me is he has not – taken his entire classes from the state of Texas. He has actually gone out of state more than any, you know, big time coach in this state has done. And since I can remember, I mean, his 2020 class had more out of state kids than they did Texas kids. And his last class in 2021, I think they had 13 Texas kids and nine out of state. That's way higher a clip than any, than Texas or Texas A&M has traditionally done, or even, you know, the Baylor's and TCU's of the world in this state. And I think the reason for that is, that it is harder and harder in Texas to find elite interior defensive linemen and elite interior offensive linemen because of the style of play, because everybody in high school football down here runs, you know, this air raid or some variation of, of a, you know, four wide receiver offense. And so, so much of the talent is on the perimeter, you know, the, the big time space eating defensive tackles or big time linebackers, that play on the inside, they just aren't as easy to find anymore. And I think Jimbo has identified that I cannot fill every need that I have to win a national championship in this state. And, you know, it may hurt some people's feelings, but I think he's right in that regard because I don't, I think the days of being able to recruit an entire team from the state of Texas to win a national championship, I don't think that exists anymore in large part because the Alabamas and the Ohio States are coming and plucking some of those top five, uh, top 10 type in-state recruits. I mean, I feel like college football at this point, everybody's recruiting nationally um, because you can. I mean, you can, we we definitely learned that in in this, in this past year, right? With the Zoom visits, Um, you know, the, the, the the notion that it's hard to to get a kid on campus from 2000 miles away or that he doesn't want to leave home. I think uh, that those days are fading. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. So, so it's not just Texas and Texas A&M, like we said, like Sam said, he's the expert. He knows the whole state. And I thought you had a really interesting story for us this week about Dave Aranda at Baylor entering his second year as head coach there. Bruce and I actually had him on here um, right after LSU. Like he had already taken the job, but it was maybe a couple weeks after the national championship with LSU. And honestly, that interview was the best explanation I'd heard of um, why the 2019 LSU offense was so effective. Um, so he brings, you know, as you detail in your story, he brings over George Munoz, who was an analyst on the, um, on that 2019 team, but he makes Larry Fedora, the OC and did not go well. (laughs) Baylor goes from 11 win team to really, really bad last year. So, you know, you had an interesting interview with him where he opened up about, I don't know, you, you tell us, but it seemed to me that he was kind of saying like, in not so many words, like I didn't know what I was doing last year. Yeah. I mean, 
that that's a pretty good way to put it. I think he didn't say it quite that frankly, but I mean, pretty much intimated that everything last year was a learning experience for him. I mean, he has never been, and Bruce, I know you've been around him a lot. He's a different personality than a lot of college football head coaches. And that he's very unassuming. And so he's not, he's not necessarily assertive with his voice or with his actions and very collaborative and that worked against him. And so he wasn't, you know, out front saying, we're going to do this, this way and this way and this way. And that's the end of the story. And over the course of the season, he figured out he had to, we come back to the coordinators is he had an idea of, okay, this offense worked at LSU beautifully. Larry Fedora is a proven offensive coach. Let's get these guys and make something happen. And it just became a mess. It, it didn't work. The The marriage of those two did not work out. It was not seamless. It was a hard product to watch. If you watched Baylor last year, they had a hard time moving the football. And as he, as Dave started to figure out what he needed to focus on as a head coach, he started to figure out, this is what I want my team to look like. And so out goes a you know spread type up tempo scheme and now we're going to bring in Jeff Grimes and we're going to do the wide zone and we're going to be physical up front so a lot of this has been a and i think he's still Dave will tell you told me he, he's still figuring this stuff out he's still trying to learn how to do the job but he, i think he feels a lot better now than he did a year ago because of some of the soul searching that he did over the course of the last 12 14 months it was interesting to read your story, Sam, because it got me to think about, and Stu was right, like that Dave podcast that we had, um, I've had several sit-downs with him. They were almost always like very early in the morning in a room that was only lit by the film of Patriots film that he was watching or something. Um, and he would go fairly stream of consciousness. I... I I kind of, and I don't know because I didn't ask you this, but I kind of feel like when you probably interviewed him, it's like he's showing his cards, you know, way more than, so when I heard that, when I, when I read that, I mean, it's got me to thinking, I was like, you know, how many head football coaches in college football do I know who show you their cards um, almost to a fault because, look, I mean, I was around Urban Meyer a lot last year and Urban Meyer is very like Kurtz, you know, like with what he's going to put out and there's stuff that isn't, I don't even know if it's getting into his head, you know, it's just, this is going to be the message and it's strictly messaging like that. Um, Dave was a longtime coordinator. And I think a lot of times what he's doing is he's, he's anticipating problems and he's, Hey, I need to check off this or I need to, you know, be mindful of that. And, and it got me to wondering like how many coaches do I know who are successful head coaches who kind of have that um, personality? You know, it's not to say it won't work. Um, we, I think, we all agree that he's a brilliant guy, and it's going to be interesting to see how, um, you know, how that works. Because I think he took over from Matt Rule, who was very, you know, he had definitely a, a vision that he was he was going to going to go through, and he was the voice of it. You know, and there was there was a strength there. Um, after seeing it for you know, you know, you watched him a lot last year. Um, how much of a hole is he digging out of right now, and what is realistic expectations for like maybe the next two years for him there? Because this is you know, I, I think for some people who looked at Baylor, at least you know, Rule did such a good job, and he really got the program out of a huge ditch. But you know, are the expectations? Hey, we got to win. We got to compete for Big Twelve championships every year. Where where do they feel, and where is it? Yeah, no, that, that that's not the expectation of Baylor, and I I think they'll be patient with them in that regard. The the drop off last season should not have been from eleven wins to two wins without question, but there 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 certainly was some talent that departed off the roster after Rule left. They lost a lot of defensive experience. You know, I think two hundred fifty four starts was the number that they lost on defense, but. That was not, in my opinion, a two and seven team when you look at the roster. I think that team, if things go well this year, they should at least be a bowl team, in my opinion. And I think they've got enough talent. They've got enough talent on the back end on defense, at linebacker, at receiver, at running back. 
they've got to figure out quarterback. They're not, they're a little thin on, on the offensive line, but I do think that this team can be a team that's either a bowl team, you know, a winning record, that type. I think they can make a big step this year. I don't, I think they are still probably a few years away from contending for big 12 title again, like they did in rules last year. Yeah. In fairness, I, to, in fairness I, to him though, it is a first year in a pandemic. Like I was thinking about it. It was like, you know, it's just, it, it's hard to be a first time head coach. I think in that year with no, like, you know, as you were saying, it, I was thinking, you know, two and seven, but there was, you know, it was no two, you know, other cupcake non-conference games where you could puff up a couple wins yep. too. So yep. I guess, you know, it is complicated. Well, the, 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 I mean, to that point, Ron Roberts, defense coordinator told me, he goes, you know, the first time that I saw players practice in pads was in August. And I mean, he got the job in January, early February. So, I mean, think about that. Like you look at Matt Wells at Texas tech, he had a year to install his culture, install schemes, get to know players. They didn't get to do any of that. And there were, you know, 23 head coaching changes last year. So all those new coaches had to do that. And that was a little bit more of a pronounced challenge as opposed to those who have already been there. And so that, yeah, I, I can't imagine how difficult that was, especially with somebody like Dave, who is so much about relationships, you know, that, and, and he, you know, the way he, the way his style, I think, does not work virtually, so to speak. He will be an interesting test case of something that I've always bandied about, which is the the paradox in college football of the the single most common way to get a head coaching job is to be a very good coordinator. And yet very few of the skills and the traits required to be a good coordinator even matter once you're a head coach. It's not about scheme, with the exception of maybe a Lincoln Riley, like you name a successful head coach, they're not a successful head coach because of their scheme. Um, and he's very, uh, you know, he's very cerebral. He's, he's very, um, he, he doesn't strike me as somebody who's going to give like a rousing locker room talk. So I'm not going to rule him out after one year and certainly not a pandemic year. Um, but he's a good example. He's a, he's an interesting case of like, is he actually meant to be a head coach or is he just a really good defensive coordinator? We'll see. I mean, he he said that he said he said he didn't want to be a head coach. That wasn't something that he was looking necessarily. Yeah, some to of do. those comments didn't really inspire confidence. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> didn't, if I'm a Baylor fan reading that, I'm like, mm, might be having some buyer's remorse. But uh, let's give him a chance. Uh, all right, um, maybe maybe we'll wrap with this. You, as Bruce said, you live in Houston. You've covered Houston. You know that program as well as anybody. When they hired Dana Holgerson, that was a big splash. Wow, the, the group of five school gets a established power five head coach and two years in not a lot to show for it um now you obviously bet big on that red shirt strategy and how could he have known that he was red shirting guys for a season that would be as screwed up as last year was but well, what's going on so far yeah it's been rough uh you remember they used to say uh the president renu couture she said we fire coaches eight and four and they fired major Applewhite after eight and five. Well, they've been four and eight and three and five since Dana Holgerson's been there. It's been tough. Uh, like you said, the, the red shirt thing, I understood it, even if I didn't agree with it. Uh, and the theory was they're going to go into 2020 and have a 10 win season or something of that nature and compete for the conference championship. Obviously that went, went sideways and there were a lot of questions on the roster. They, you know, Dana called them soft. You know, he said, we started the year physical and we ended the year soft, you know, that they, they just did not play at the level that he thought they should. Uh, this last two years has been a lot about roster management. And I think this season is huge for him because you've, at some point you have to show this is why we hired this guy. And so in my opinion, they need to compete for a conference championship this year. They need to be up there with the SMUs and the UCFs you know, Memphis of the world in the American athletics. So uh, this is a huge year for him. Uh, I know he feels really good about the defense. Uh, they, they've got defensive depth for the first time in a long time. Houston's not it's necessarily something that U of H football has hung its hat on. And uh, there are, I think there are a little bit, some questions offensively. They've got a veteran quarterback, in Clayton Toon, uh, who I know he likes. Uh, I think he's probably got to take care of the ball a little bit better, but uh, they're the one of the most intriguing teams to me to watch in this state because I think it's just such a critical year for Dana and for this program. Sam, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is it's Stu and I are kind of split. I don't want to go back to the coach to coaching top twenty five, but like 
where Gary Patterson is on there is an interesting topic. Uh, the last three years, I think they're 18 and 17. And it's interesting just in that the profile, the profile of that program, you know, if you take, you know, go back six or seven years, um, a lot of the kids now only know them as a Big 12 program. And they don't know them as the program that was ping-ponging from conferences and conferences that they're about to play in or maybe not. Um, I don't want to say, is there any pressure on him? But is this, do you foresee, because he had a bunch of top 10 seasons, right? I think he's had seven since he's been there and three in the last decade. But it's, like I said, they're about basically 500 the last three years. Do you think Gary Patterson will have another top 10 season at TCU again if you were a betting man? No, I don't think so. Not not at this point. I do think they have a chance to take a big step up this year. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I think the way the state has been splintered in recruiting and how difficult it is. And, and Gary and his staff have always been really good about finding those kind of under-the-radar guys and developing them. But I just don't, unless they get a game-changing quarterback, which I don't think Max Duggan is at this point, I don't know that they're going to get back to that that stature. I do think they can be good and they can, you know, be in the conversation and in the mix going into November for a Big 12 championship, you know, here and there. But to me, this is a huge year because he has not gone ever three seasons without double-digit wins since he's been there. And the last three years, like you said, 18 and 17, they have not. To me, I think this is they've got a lot of talent back this year. I think this is a huge year for them to try to make that kind of run because if they're going to get back into that conversation, I think they have to be close to a 10-win team this year to get back that direction. Stu, do you do you think they're are you do you agree with Sam that Patterson's days of top? Yeah, 10 I football think he's entering Mark D'Antonio territory. Um, I hate Oof. to say that, but but Sam hit the nail on the head, like. I mean, Garrett, what he does, he does remain a premier defensive coach. Like, even yep. in these lean years, they're still putting out one of the best defenses in the Big 12. He just cannot get quarterback figured out. And if you go back at the the great T- TCU team since he's been there, you know, it was Andy Dalton, it was Trevon Boykin. Like, you can have the greatest defenses in the world. If you don't have a quarterback, you're not going to have those kind of seasons. So, um Count me in, by the way, on Duggan. I'm going to disagree with you guys. So I get to take it, Bruce. Your answer is yes. You'll have another top 10 season. Uh, at some point, I do. And I do think, like, Max Duggan is, has the potential to slide into my Adrian Martinez uh, feelings where it's like, I, I'm not getting off the bandwagon. Um, and I know he... Are and you before still on the, the Adrian Martinez bandwagon? <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Um, You're a very but, patient um, man. <laughs> Yeah, um, but but it with with Duggan, and again, I, I, this is a lot of anecdotal stuff because I saw them play, you know, Texas, and I saw it in person. Saw how good I thought he was, and he made a lot of clutch throws, and he's athletic, and he's tough. And before the year, he did have um, that issue related to COVID, but it was it was I want to say it was like a heart issue, right, Sam? Yeah, um, he had an operation, and he missed almost all of fall camp because. Yeah, of that. and so he, so he, like, even for him able to have the win to play, you know, a full game was challenging. I, I think I don't want to say they're going to be a top ten team this year. I'm not, I'm not thinking. I'm going to be the dissenter here and think that that TCU will have another top ten season under Gary Patterson. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it plays. I mean, certainly he's not under any job pressure. He's a statue outside the stadium. So he will leave on his own terms whenever that is. And maybe he'll stick around long enough to get that top 10 seat. You know, maybe he'll enter, get some star quarterback out of the transfer portal next year and and do it that way. But I'm, I'm leaning with the Texas guy. Didn't he just get one with Chandler Morris? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Our internal Slack channel has spent 24 hours trying to figure out the Chandler Moore situation, and I still don't understand it, but that's for another podcast. All right. Um, so you can find all Sam's great work at The Athletic, which people who listen to this podcast should know by now. If you go to theathletic.com slash the audible, you can get on and get a discount on your subscription. Sam, before we let you go, since you are the tech expert, um, give us the three best barbecue places in the state of Texas. Wow. I mean, number one is Franklin Barbecue in Austin. You just have to be willing to stand in a four-hour line uh, unless you want to spend enough to buy an entire brisket. If you want to buy the whole brisket, 
which is I think upwards of a hundred dollars, you can go to like an express line and go pick it up. And that takes like five or 10 minutes if that. So that's the cheat sheet. If you have a large people, large amount of people to feed uh, pecan lodge in Dallas, uh, any of you guys who have been down for playoff games or bowl games uh, down at AT&T stadium, a lot of people have down gone down to pecan lodge and, Dallas uh, in Deep Ellum, which is Pecan Lodge is one of my favorites without question. And uh, I don't know if I think Stu, I think you've made this trip before with Andy all the way out to Lexington to Snow's Barbecue um, at eight in the morning on a Saturday. Andy made the trip for us. God <laughs> okay. bless the guy and brought it to the press box at Texas A&M. Yeah, I remember that in 2013. It snows at Texas Monthly, I think, currently has snows as the number one in the state. They This is how good they are. They open one day a week and one day a week only at 8 a.m. on Saturdays. And so if you want Snow's Barbecue, you better go wake up and drive out to Lexington, Texas and get there at 8 a.m. But uh, Snows, Franklin, and Pecan Lodge are probably your best. Well, I'm feeling very proud that I've had all three. There you go. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's that that is that is the top end of the top end in this state, without question. Very good, Sam. We're uh, seriously, we are so fired up. You're with us. Um, I even, you know, I think about that one when we've had some some uh, of our calls and everything. Just the insight you bring, and just having done it for a long time now. So. Well, I appreciate it. It's, yeah. it's been a lot of fun to be with you guys. You guys are an awesome group. All right. Follow Sam and read all his stuff on The Athletic. Uh, he's getting out on the road and busy. So uh, what do you got next? I'm going to Lubbock. Uh, I actually will be there tomorrow and visiting with Texas Tech. And we'll go to their spring game. And then uh, the week after, we'll go to Texas' spring game. And off we go. It's a lot of traveling, a lot of trips, a lot of more than what I have done the last 12 months. <laughs> Sam's Twitter handle, by the way, is SCON Jr. S-K-H-A-N-J-R. And uh, that is, we're going to live vicariously through you. He, Bruce and I haven't made it off the couch yet, but we will see. Uh, speak for yourself, Stu. I'm going to USC spring game this weekend. All right. Hey, so there we go. go. Some real football. All right, Sam. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Sam. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Okay, and now to the mailbag. As always, send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Let's do this first question is from Kevin. Hey, gents, enjoying this off-season chat. Can I ask you a question you may groan about? Oh, Kevin, this is a question Stu loves or a topic he loves. Realignment. Yeah, what I'm never going to groan about realignment questions. No, I know you're not. What are the current time scales for the Pac-12, Big 12, Previous tw- Big tw- Pac-12 commissioner made an attempt. I think that would be Larry Scott, right? Made an attempt to get Texas and Oklahoma. Do you see the Big Twelve eventually disappearing? Will sorry, 
Will we will we ever have a pack a power three conference? Sorry, I am reading with my contacts, and that's why it's a little harder for me. Will we have a power three conference with the Big Ten, SEC, and ACC? Lastly, will will strong group of five teams like UCF and Cincinnati ever get an invite in? And will North Dakota? I assume he means North Dakota State ever get out of FCS? Lots of questions. There's like eight they, questions packed into one here. Um, I mean, I think that that's the million-dollar question, or I would guess I would say billion-dollar question, um, going into 2024 when the Pac-12 deal, TV deal comes up in 2025 when the Big 12s comes up. Are either of them going to make some sort of big move and might they possibly do one together? Um, you know, Pac-12 is going to have a new commissioner soon. We don't know who it is yet. Um, I would recommend that they do do something like that because the, the way things are headed now you know, we use the phrase power five, but it's really the power two if you're talking money. The, the Big Ten and the SEC have so separated themselves from everybody else. Uh, and, and it's even going to get worse here uh, in the next few years. So if you're the Big 12 and the Pac-12 and you're going to market with your TV deal in a few years, yeah, you're going to see an increase because live sports is very valuable and they haven't had, uh, you know, they've, they've been stuck in their current deals for a decade, but they're not going to get SEC Big Ten money. But if they join forces, they might. Uh, Bruce and I had that econ lesson a couple months ago. Um, if, if the only chance that ESPN or Fox or somebody else had to get either conference was to bid on them together, they'd make a lot more money. Now, that's not the only consideration. Does um, Do the presidents at Cal and Stanford and UCLA want to be in a conference with Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas Tech? I have I don't know. I'm guessing uh, no. I'm guessing no, <laughs> I'm guessing and it would yeah. just be, you know, it comes down to how aggressive will the next commissioner be about, like, kind of <laughs> imploring them to do something. Say, hey, this is the reality. If you guys don't do something big, uh, we're going to fall further into oblivion. So, um, and look, everybody just assumes that the Big 12 would be the one that would be the most in danger. But if you've been paying attention the last few years, the Pac-12 has had a lot more issues than the Big 12. Um, you know, could the Big 12 be the one that pounces and tries to get some of their school? So um, probably more realistically is the other scenario he brought up that maybe the Big 12, um, they certainly entertained it in 2016. Do they go out and get a Cincinnati and try to beef up the conference a little bit that way? Um, certainly possible. I don't think North Dakota, North Dakota State to me has had chances to go up to FBS, I think they like it the way they have it, of being the powerhouse of the division below. Stu, why would I refresh my memory on this? And obviously, this is a little bit of not revisionist history, but Cincinnati's football program has really elevated under under Luke Fickle, especially in the last couple of years. If you're the Big Twelve, why would you not make that move? Because it's not like they're that much of an outlier geographically when you already have West Virginia in there. So. What would be, and again, UCF is another one where I was like, I could I could see that. It's Orlando. It's a big market. They've been very good in football. Um, and now they're a little more of an established brand. So if you're the Big 12, like if you, I'm not saying what do you think they would do. What, what, what would you do if you're the Big 12 well, when it comes to those? I teams? thought they should have done it in 2016. I, I, I thought, um, I thought the reward outweighed the risk. The risk... And the reason they didn't do it is, and, and I'm talking about the presence. I think Bob, if you ask Bob Bowlesby, give him some truth serum, he'd say we absolutely should have expanded. But it's not ultimately his call. It's the president's. And basically it came down to they didn't want to split the pie with two more people. They wanted, they like splitting it 10 ways, not 12. Um, and they weren't confident. I guess they weren't confident that any of those schools, they also talked to Houston well, and, and BYU. and whatnot. They weren't confident that any of those schools would lift the overall value enough. Let me... Let me uh, let me remind you of something though. You said 2016. Yeah. The two schools we're talking about in particular have had a lot of success since then. Yeah, 2016. I think Scott Frost was like had, took over a program <laughs> that had just been a zero win team and got him to 500. And the Cincinnati coach was for, was Tommy Tuberville, and the yeah. program was starting to circle the drain under him. I think so, that's why the equation different. is should be should be different this time around because so so. I mean, you're going to make more money regardless. Like you, when you, if you're a sports conference and you have a TV deal coming up, like just by nature of, I guess, inflation, TV inflation, you're going to make more money. But you know, 
the question would be, would those programs add value to your conference? Absolutely. Uh, the Big 12 right now has a problem in that people want to watch Oklahoma and people want to watch Texas. Other than that, you know, Baylor will have a couple of good years here and there. You know, Iowa State is the story of the moment right now. But for in general, I think people still view it as a two-team conference. They you don't know, Texas have... hasn't really held up its end of it in a long time. Yeah, I would to add context to that. Yeah, this is all, it's all a little anecdotal, but um, a couple of years ago, our crew had a double. To, it was actually Lincoln Riley's first game as a head coach, but we had a double. We were at, at Oklahoma State. They were playing a Tulsa team that I think was coming off a ten-win season, and it was they were we were in Stillwater on Thursday night. Oklahoma State had a good team. Now that turned out to be a blowout, but the TV ratings number on that was horrific. It was up against an Ohio State Indiana game, I think, and that was a, turned out to be a good game. But the numbers to underscore what you're saying, just in terms of like this isn't we're not not even never mind Ohio State, but even when you get into the Penn State, Michigan, Nebraska kind of depth of what they typically draw, whether they're pretty good or or even more than that. Even when some of these other teams are really good, they don't draw a lot of TV numbers, and I think that's a that's an unfortunate reality, especially as it relates to the to the rest of the Big Twelve. The Big Twelve also sends, you know, every year we'll have the draft here in a couple of weeks, and every you know after the draft's over, you'll see the numbers of who got picked by conference. The Big Twelve is always fifth out of five, even even if you divide it by number of schools. You know, they're, they're, they need to upgrade their football product. And I do think that those two programs unquestionably would upgrade it. And then it's just a question of, you know, UCF and Cincinnati are doing pretty well now as a group of five team. If you give them power five affiliation, you know, what's the ceiling from there? Um, TCU had that going for a little bit. We just talked about them. They're not so much right now, but, you know, Iowa State's Utah really has elevated Iowa State their program just, in the Pac-12. Iowa State just had the best program, best season they've ever had. And I feel like they're a top 10 team now. So there's definitely some some really good things about it. I think you should call up Bob Bowlesby and have a conversation. Oh, I'm sure nobody has brought this, <laughs> up, this idea to him ever. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Just say, look, just, it's not 2016 anymore, Bob. Yeah, These I'm other sure teams ne- have really gotten it going. All right. Um, this next question from Andrew, uh, I'll read it to you. Bruce, hey guys, I've always wondered why the Pac-12 hasn't been able to recruit better, specifically keeping West Coast recruits like Najee Harris from going back East. Even though it has been down in recent years, it's not like the conference hasn't been able to produce its fair share of high NFL draft picks like Jared Goff and Justin Herbert. While the current TV package leaves a lot to be desired, most of the conference resides in major metropolitan areas with lots of exposure. With that being said, why have so many players gone to schools outside the conference in recent years? Well, Stu, I think it. There's a bunch of reasons. Um, uh, certainly, the that a lot of the top, more high-profile programs now. I think it's they're hot at this point. Like people weren't leaving the Pac-12 footprint, and when it was the Pac-10 footprint, I guess when Pete Carroll had USC was the hottest thing in college football, right? Um, I think that's as much of look. Oregon is recruiting better than it ever has. And they're doing a lot of damage on the West Coast. I think Washington has actually done pretty well. I think really what it comes back to is the L.A. schools. Um, UCLA has not gotten much of what they would used to get. And USC, now they had a, had a bounce back year this year. But I think you got to remember, Clay Helton was on the hot seat so badly um, coming out of 2019 that that was a horrific recruiting year. Now, were they going to keep everybody? Do you keep? Were you, would they have kept Bryce Young, who's now probably going to be the starter at Alabama? You know, there's other guys. Where would Tua have gone? Like Alabama has had a lot of success out of there. Ohio State has had has had success. LSU got Eli Ricks out of there, um, out of Southern California. I think that's a big function of it. Um, I mean, look. Like Alabama is has had unprecedented success under Nick Saban. I mean, it's it's insane how many national titles he's winning. And then you throw in now, Clemson's brand is elevated. They've gotten some really good players out of here just in the last couple of years because their brand has been elevated. Um, and then you know, look, you can say it this way. I think some of those programs are committed to playing football at the highest level with all those things that go into it and. Some of the Pac-12 schools probably haven't been. 
Um, if you're interested in this topic, I would come pay attention to The Athletic early next week. There may, may or may not be a story devoted entirely to this topic um, that goes way in more depth than we can answer on a podcast. Can you share any more? Is this an Ari Wasserman story? Um, no, it is not an Ari Wasserman story. Um, can you tell us who the author is? I cannot, but okay. keep, keep an eye out for that early next week. But I, what I would what I would just add is this: I think what's going on with the Pac-12 now is just a perfect example of how the playoff has come to just define everything. Like for the elite recruits, it's where can I go to get in the playoff and go to the NFL? And right now, that's like one of four places. So, um, so I mean, I think there's there's for instance, there's two kids in the in the top ten of this current class. Who are both in the state of Washington, and neither of them are going to Washington. One is signed with the Ohio State; the other one, I believe, is between Ohio State and Alabama. Like they, they, those kids feel like if I want to play big time football, I can't do it here, which you know is unfortunate for the Pac-12 because they do have a history of producing national champions, including at Washington. But right now, in 2021, that's the perception. Like if you want to play at the highest level, you got to go to the SEC, you got to go to Clemson, you got to go to Ohio State, and and it's easier than ever for those schools to, I mean, Clemson used to never get kids out of California, but they can do it now in part because on social media. Um, they, they, were they ever trying to get them out though also? I don't know about that. I don't know how hard they were trying. Um, same with I Alabama. I feel like they, they know they've expanded. I mean, look, Alabama in the last couple of years, certainly you had Lane Kiffin who spent a lot of time at USC. You had Steve Sarkeesian who spent a lot of time at SC. You had Jeff Banks, who's from California. So they had a lot of guys who had ties to the West Coast. I think the visibility was a lot higher. You know, back in the, you know, 15 years ago, a lot of these games weren't game of the week games. So I think that kind of factored into it. Um, and it's not to say that that all the top kids leave. I mean, everybody wanted Justin Flo in Southern California. He went to... He went to Oregon. Everybody wanted Kayvon Thibodeau. He went up to Oregon. I mean, Corey Foreman was a big-time defensive lineman. He ended up staying in California to go to USC. So you still see some examples of kids staying on. But it's, you know, and there, there were examples of guys like Lorenzo Booker. I'm sure you remember that name, Stu. Like, mm-hmm. he left Southern California to go be a running back at Notre Dame. DJ Williams left. Yes, that's right. The Florida drama slipped there. I do remember the drama. Yeah. Um, but like DJ Williams left Southern California, uh, left Northern California to go to Miami. He was somebody everybody wanted. There have been those, but it's just been more of them right now. And I, you know, I would use this benchmark thing. There was a time, and this is right when Pete Carroll got the USC job, where guys were leaving, and Sean Cody was the number one defensive player in the country, and he is from he was a California kid. His dad grew up a big Notre Dame guy. And Pete Carroll was able to convince him to stay and go to USC. And that was a big change. Now, they ended up winning a lot, and that led to it. Question is, if, you, if, if, um, you know, if you're Clay Helton and you can't turn this team, like they have enough talent to be a top 25 team, but if they can't be an actual playoff team, I think it's not going to convince the, a lot of those kids that they feel like, you know, whether it's DJ Uyunglele, to basically stay home as opposed to I'm going to go to Clemson where I will be competing for national titles every other year. And, you know, to your, you, you said how hard was Clemson trying for they, they have more ways to do it now. I mean, 15 years ago, Clemson would have sent a pamphlet in the mail to DJ. Now, like they're probably DMing him, texting him. Mm. Um, and then he can, you know, follow Clemson football's Twitter account every day. There's a new video from practice or from the facility. Like you can get a window into what life is like there from 3,000 miles away. So now, all that being said, it can be flipped. You know, like like if Clay Helton gets fired and they bring in, it's not going to be Urban Meyer, but somebody of that profile. They, br- and they bring in Mario Cristobal. Whoever, like somebody who flips the script and gets get guys to start staying home. and Or if, Oregon, if Mario Cristobal goes to the playoff next year and, and now you have tangible proof that like you can come here and you can do it. Um, you know, I, I don't think this is some sort of permanent state that they're in. All right, Bruce, uh, frequent uh, contributor, Dan Klobuchar. Hey, Stu and Bruce, I have a question about a very specific team. What has gone so terribly wrong at Purdue under Jeff Brom? During his first two seasons, they had a respectable record against a mostly Power 5 non-conference, went 7-7, seven and seven, 
with two bowl games, had some pretty nice wins over ranked teams. I would, I would say it wasn't just pretty nice. They clobbered Ohio State on national television and played an exciting brand of football. However, since then, the team is 6-18 and ended 2020 on a four-game losing streak with some uninspired play on both sides of the ball, had a recruiting class ranked in the 70s, and will likely go 2-10 and this upcoming season. That's quite a dire prediction, Dan. Uh, where did the train go off the tracks? Well, I think it's been limited offensively. They haven't had much of an identity. Um, I think last year was a rough year, certainly with Rondell Moore, who was that superstar recruit that he got. I think they've... You know, George Karlaftis, who was a local kid, was a big get for them. And obviously, he got his brother, I think, you know, a couple years later. But I think what it comes down to, Jeff Brom is one of the best offensive coaches, but he has not, you know, Jack Plummer had his moments, but I just feel like that's been kind of short-circuited for him. Like, we did their bowl game, and it was actually Rich Rod's last game at Arizona. And um, Blau had been hurt, David Blau had been hurt on and off, and had a you know, a bunch of uh, injury issues. And, you know, they got pretty good quarterback play, but I just felt like, you know, it wasn't like when they were at Western Kentucky, it was a Brandon Dowdy, mm-hmm. you know, was just really operated what they did well. They were pretty pretty freewheeling. He's really good with trick plays and is a really good play caller. Um, I wouldn't write, you know, say it's not, you know, it's been a disaster. I still think that they're a dangerous team. I just think that it comes back to can they have a you know develop a quarterback to do kind of to play anywhere near the level that he had guys operating at Western Kentucky you know not that long ago. I don't think it's just that um, it's not like he's forgot what he what you know his identity. I just think it was just for whatever reason it's been a lot of little things for them. That first season, that 2017 season, they weren't very good on offense. They were surprisingly good on defense. Nick Holt was the coordinator. Mm-hmm. But it was a very senior-heavy group, and they left, and they got bad again. <laughs> then the next year, Rondell Moore comes in, and my gosh, like the impact he had as a freshman was unbelievable. And then they never really had him again. He was hurt uh, the next two years for the most part. And it's not like Purdue is in a place where they have three more of those guys right, waiting on the bench. So they do have a really good receiver now, actually, David Bell. Um by the way, Stu, this is interesting. It, this yeah. is interesting to me. So last year they were two and four. Mm-hmm. Um, the four losses they lost by a touchdown to your alma mater, Northwestern. They lost by three points at Minnesota. That was kind of that crazy game. I don't know if you remember on a Friday night with a mm-hmm. wild call at the end of the game. They lost by a touchdown to Rutgers, and they lost by ten points to Nebraska. Now none of those teams, and Northwestern obviously had a good year, but you know it wasn't like they played Ohio State, you know, in that group. Because they beat Iowa to start the season, and they beat Illinois, but like every game was within was was ten points or less. And know? it was a weird year. I mean, I don't know. I I'm not gonna I'm gonna I'm not gonna say I've had I have studied Purdue at all for coming into this year, but I think Dan may be unnecessarily negative there, based on what you just said. Maybe you know a few breaks the other way, and uh, we have a different picture of them. You know, I, I probably spoke too soon. On, it was a plumber last year. Now, they were all in losses. His numbers are actually really good. Uh, completed 71% of his passes, eight touchdowns, two picks. Now, he's a sophomore. He's only, you know, he's still, you know, he's not a, um, you know, it's not like he's a fifth-year senior doing that. But, you know, you just look at it. It was like their offense, I don't know. They just lost a lot of tight games for whatever reason. And maybe that's just... You know, as you said, their defense really struggled after that first year under Nick Holt, and I'm sure that didn't help. Um, it's kind of an interesting question, though, the more I, the more you look into it a little bit. Last thing real quick, uh, Frank and Sacramento. Interesting discussion last week about how football programs take so long to rise up compared to basketball programs in college. I would qualify all the praise given to Oregon, however. They didn't do it on their own at all. They had Nike pour all that money, research, and cachet if, if Nike had poured all that money, research, and cachet into Oregon State as opposed to the Ducks, I think Oregon would have really gone nowhere. What do you think about that statement? That definitely had a huge impact. I don't know that I would say they would have gone nowhere. I don't want to, you know, I don't know. I think that obviously you can't, you know, what Nike did for a lot of programs, but especially for that one, um, you know, we talked about the Joey Harrington billboard and everything else from like 
how they made them cutting edge and a cool program with their innovation. Um, you can't, like you can't, uh, you know, he's right to this degree. You cannot talk about Oregon's rise without talking about the impact that Nike Innovation and how Phil Knight really embraced that program from its, you know, and built it up um, had a really remarkable impact. So, yeah, I think there's, a, you know, you can't, you know, you can't say that enough. Yeah, I mean, I would say that you're absolutely right that it's played a big part in their rise as a brand. But uh, buildings don't win football games. Sneakers don't win football games. I mean, Oregon is Oregon because Chip Kelly came there and and unleashed an offense nobody had ever seen. Uh, or, or that they recruited a quarterback from Hawaii who wasn't even all that highly rated who won the Heisman Trophy. Like, this is actual football, good coaching, good players. And by the way, they've also had years that where despite having the you know most plush locker room in America, that they were terrible. So um, I think one of the things that gets greatly overstated in college, like the schools spend so much money and, they, and they're in this endless arms race to have the nicest facilities, the nicest uniforms. And, the, and at the end of the day, like that, nobody has ever to, been able to convince me that there's some like scientific correlation between having the best weight room and having the best football teams. I mean, you're talking about just facilities wise, not the way facilities wise, which is one of the main things with Oregon. Um, you know, they were, you know, their, their uniforms were very trendsetting. No question. Did their uniforms win them football games? Like maybe it helped them land some recruits. Uh, but at the end of the day, like we've seen teams, we've seen teams with pretty meager facilities. win games. Miami had, Miami had really pretty, underwhelming facilities for a long time and when they had the best football program in the country i would imagine their facilities itself on campus were probably not in the top 20 and they had better talent than anybody so now it's in their backyard but i think that was a big function of that usc Pete carroll 2005 i was there all the time there was absolutely nothing special about heritage hall like very nondescript, right? And they went except for all the down. trophies in there. Except for all the trophies. Yeah, well, it was very impressive to look at the trophies, but it wasn't like yeah. These no, I agree. As you see now, and on the flip side, like, um, I mean, you and I, we go to these campuses all over. They all have nice facilities now, like, and but your alma mater has national championships. Your alma mater now, the stadium is is not is nothing, but your alma mater has a really cool football facility. Yeah, well, they it's they do. It's a. Uh, some absurd $250 million facility on the beach and they opened it in 2018 and in 2019 they went three and nine right now they had a great year last year but it wasn't like getting to practice with a view of the ocean led to them <laughs> led to anything one way or the other so um it's silly it's also I, I just every time you go to a school they, they they insist on showing you a tour and showing you all the fancy things and the waterfalls and the juice bars and it's just like at the end of the day it's who has the best coaches and who has the best players um with that as always send your emails to the audible pod at gmail.com there's a lot of spring games this weekend bruce are you going to be glued to the tube it's alabama it's georgia it's uh usc you're going to go to the usc game. i'm gonna yeah i will not be glued to the tube i have my, I have my son has a baseball game and then i'm gonna go right from there to the coliseum to see the trojans so well that'll be I'm cool to see to, to be in a stadium and see a football game for the first time since the lsu national championship game right yeah yeah that's that long yeah i didn't even think about it like that but yes and um look i'm excited about just knowing some of these spring games are going to be on tv um you know it's just it's you know my problem how i handle spring games right you dvr them and you watch and you watch them in about fifteen minutes later because you only need Stu, to see you're, the parts Stu, you ain't that busy. Let me tell you why you should watch them because the time the announcers who spent time around the coaches and everything, you will learn way more about the program than what you can see in some like watered down drill. I do watch you know? them. I do watch them. I, I know, but I'm saying you live. need to listen to yeah. them. No, I, I mean, do. You, I do. I just don't watch them live. Because it, eventually they reach the point where the third string and the walk-ons are on the field, and you just don't. But the third really string guy may be the player. It's funny that we've reversed that roles here. Two years ago on this podcast, 
we had a we did a show I think like the Monday after a weekend like this one in Ohio State. Justin Fields had made his debut, and and I was making all these granted. You're like, it's a spring game. It doesn't matter. Like, stop reading so much into the spring games. And no, I think right. it's. I think the thing about it though is it's the dialogue. You know, whoever goes there to do the game, they're going. It's a little bit to me like when the B- BTN does their campus tour. Like, I want to hear what Revson or Howard Griffin or Donardo has heard about, or maybe they've seen. And I think when you get some announcers, and I'm not diminishing, certainly, like, what play-by-play and and analysts do during an actual, you know, fall Saturday. But I think with spring games, that context is kind of interesting. Just like, you know, I want to hear, when we had Grace on, I wanted to hear her impressions of stuff because you know, we're not there for it, right? And so, especially now where like, like I feel like this part of the off season, I, you know, after I'm done with all my draft stuff that I'm on the hook for, I want to make sure that I really dig into and make a lot of calls about who is where, because there's a lot of, you know, and there's going to be a ton of guys jumping in the portal soon. Um, but also just basically what teams look like now, because, um, there's just so much turnover and just to get up to speed on it. And you mentioned Clemson. I watched the Clemson one a couple weeks ago, and, and this is another cool thing about spring games. Dabo basically narrated the whole game in real time. Like, you know, he interjected about each player after they made a play. Alabama, Saban, they usually, Saban stands behind the play, and they usually, um, you know, I can remember years past when Herb Street or somebody was like had a microphone in his face during the game. So you, you get a window into the teams that you wouldn't normally do during the season. Again, emails, theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.